Welcome to the Growth Circle Podcast, discussing topics of personal growth, gathering stories of individuals embarked on the path to success, and most importantly, providing a platform for individuals that want to learn and grow. And now, here is your host, Lincoln Amstutz. Hello and welcome back to the Growth Circle Podcast. I'm your host, Lincoln Amstutz, and today I've got Wes Litton on the podcast with me here and excited to jump into this conversation a little bit about Wes before I bring him on. Wes is a seasoned realtor and investor who started his career in real estate back in 2016. He was the number one rookie sales agent in Springfield and was in the top 10 for all of Keller Williams rookies his first year. Since then, Wes and his team have produced over 3,000 transactions and facilitated over 575 units just last year. Wes has amassed a portfolio of over 13 million in cash flowing assets, with his biggest emphasis being self storage. In addition, he is owner in Springfield KW Franchise and First Team Mortgage Lending. While he is still early on in his career, Wes has found massive success. And not only building his ownership in real estate, but also gives back so much of his time to helping others do the same. So without further ado, Wes, welcome on the podcast. Wow, what an intro. Thanks, Lincoln. Hey, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Excited for this. Uh, we've uh, we've known each other for quite a while here, but haven't ever officially sat down and, and kind of dove into your story all the way through. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. And uh, first question for you, You, you've found success in steadily growing your real estate portfolio and building one of the top producing teams here in Southwest Missouri. Uh, What do you attribute your success to and why did you choose real estate as your desired place to work in and invest? Wow, great, great question. Um, You know, right out of the gate, I think real estate was always one of those things that was um, in the family, you know? So dad had flipped houses, mom had been a realtor, um, my uncle was a really successful realtor. So all kind of people in my world had, had experiences within real estate. And so growing up, I never really thought I'd be an agent. I thought that if anything, I would, um, you know, kind of follow dad's footsteps and flip some houses and work another job, you know, something corporate and just have fun in real estate on the side. Um, quickly when you, uh, have success on the side and you hate your nine to five, it's pretty easy to make a transition to full-time. And so that's kind of how it happened. You know, um, it was never really the top game plan. It was more of, um, just the way that I was brought into it, I guess. Um, so I know that's not a great answer for you. Like kind of just saying, Hey, I fell into it or I kind of grew into it, but, um, I was, I ended up making so much more money in real estate, house flipping and sales that it really just didn't make sense to keep the nine to five. So I guess that's the short of it. Absolutely. I mean, at, at a certain point, it, you just start to see some success and the options there of, well, if I spend more time here, my per hour and just return on my time investment, you know, I can see something growing here versus where I'm currently at. Yeah. So was it initially real estate uh, investing and house flipping or was it uh, just being an agent and doing some of the sales first? Yeah, it's good. Yeah. So, um, I actually went to college and, uh, I was planning on being an accountant, um, which is not at all my personality like whatsoever, but I thought, Hey, it's a great job. It's a good degree. You know, 
Um, numbers are kind of the, the blood of real estate. So um, I thought if I really understand numbers, that'll really help me in any career field. And uh, about two and a half years into college, um, I had been taking um, summer school courses at OTC. And so I had amassed enough credits about a year and a half in, two years in, that my advisor kind of sat me down and said, hey, you can graduate in three years if you'll quit the accountancy track and switch to uh, just a general business degree with an emphasis in real estate. And I thought, okay, yeah, I can cut an entire year off my undergrad. Absolutely. So I did. And uh, it turned out to be a really good decision. So I actually graduated with a business degree, uh, just general management, emphasis in real estate. And then I was able to take that and go get, you know, just a normal corporate job. So I was able to land good, um, good work. But then I started to get into, you know, buying single families and then, and I was doing it with like an FHA loan. So I, I really didn't know, uh, crazy coming off of a family who had done this for years, that I really didn't know uh, what I should have done. And I think that's a testament to people who are experienced tend to assume that other people know, uh, and it's our job to teach them. So I think that's where maybe a lot of my heart comes from as I see myself in a lot of young investors or young home buyers. But all of that to say, I uh, utilized the FHA loan the first time and I bought a uh, foreclosure. So this was like a, a 2013, right in there. Um, and so bought a foreclosure for 70,000 and, uh, that house just resold for 219,000. So it makes me sick that I ever sold it, but, um, was able to get into it, house hacked it, remodeled it while I was in it and resold it. And that was kind of the light bulb moment. I was like, oh my goodness, I just made more money doing that than I had the entire previous year at my nine to five. So it made sense to drop the W2 and to pursue real estate. About that same time, as I was in the process of quitting, um, I got a phone call from a local bank and uh, they had just repossessed some self-storage facilities. Uh, they were in Joplin, Missouri. And so at the time they'd called my dad to take them over because he had had experience in self-storage and he basically just said, you know, I'm not interested in three. That's too much for just me. And uh, so the bank turned and called me and literally said, Hey, this is the call that changes your life. You need to go quit your job and you're going to take these over. And I did as crazy as that sounds. I did. <laughs> so that's, that's really the launch. That's like from zero, just working nine to five college all the way to, oh my goodness, I'm now a full-time investor. So Right, right. And so you pretty quickly went from that single family house to these self-storage facilities. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like your college uh, education and some of your experience and just knowing how to work with numbers and, and that side, the math side of things helped with getting into self-storage and seeing the potential in that deal? Like, I'm sure that was yeah. a lot at once just to learn is this even a good investment? They say it is. How do I know? How can I take this down? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, no, not at all. There was nothing that really could have prepared me for that. Um, yeah, it was entirely learn as you go. So my undergrad was awesome because I at least understood what it meant to, you know, you know, the, like the basic flow of money. In other words, you have to have income, you have expenses and the results net profit. I understood the difference between assets and liabilities, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, so broad concept, really helpful. Uh, practically not helpful at all. Uh, never learned how to underwrite anything. Just literally the bank call says, hey, you're taking these over. 
I say yes. I had never seen the properties. I had no financials. Um, and so I jumped in the truck. I drove out to see them the next day and they were in terrible condition, like the worst things I've ever seen to this day. And we've bought a lot of crap. Um, these were the worst properties I've ever seen. Uh, Joplin police was dropping off homeless people at one location and telling them to live in the storage units. Like that's how bad these were. So we had a, a big project there, but what was neat about the way the bank did it is they were taking these back and self-storage works like a business. So someone has to be there every day paying attention to it. And uh, the bank's not really into running businesses. So they were looking for someone to just step into that role. So what they did was they gave me amazing debt on the properties. And then they wrote a line of credit for me that I could draw on for any of my living expenses for the first few years. Um, mm. And then they also extended repair credits as well. So this was back when banks were, you know, a little more desperate. So this would have been 15, 14, 15, right in there. And so banks would have been a little bit more desperate in that time to get non-cash flowing assets off their balance sheet because they still had some PTSD from, you know, 2009 to 2011. So when we moved in, they basically just said, hey, we'll cover your living expenses for a couple of years. You get these going. And uh, we did. I am uprooted and moved over to Joplin and lived in the facility's office and we ran them. So yeah. it was amazing. Yeah. Full commitment to, you know, to the deal, but it sounds yeah. like it was worthwhile enough. There was enough payoff. If you can yes. get these things up and running that it just made sense to make that full 180 switch. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm just listening to that thinking, you know, of course that was years ago. I've only been in the business four or five years myself. It doesn't seem like yeah, banks are in a much different place now that, you know, the bank's working with you to that extreme of like, yeah, here's a line of credit, live off of this, just help us with this asset that we've got so we can yeah. unload it eventually. Uh, totally different time. But again, markets are different. And did, did you have a relationship with that bank for them to, to approach you? Or I mean, how did that engagement start? Yeah, that's a great question. So this is a wild one. Um, years ago, my dad bought a facility in South Ozark direct from the owner. And this facility was just in terrible condition. Um, another weird one. So that was at the, at the trough in 2009. So like early to mid 2009, he came in and actually bought this self-storage facility largely by accident. And um, at the time, Great Southern Bank held the note and Great Southern was foreclosing on every asset that this guy owned. And he had like, uh, I think it was like 280 different uh, properties across the United States. So this guy, every property is getting foreclosed on. Great Southern held all the notes. And they didn't want to release the, the deed or the lien on this uh, deed because it was one of the only kind of decent properties that was local. And back then, Great Southern cared about local. And so the way that my dad was able to get it was to assume that guy's loan, basically allow Great Southern to continue the debt on the property. Um, and so in that scenario is kind of how my dad got engaged with Great Southern Bank. And then when they took these ones over in the future, they called him to say, hey, you know, you took over an ugly asset. You made it work. Could you do it again? And um, when he declined, that was when they they reached out to me. So I had actually, uh, when I first moved from the West Coast to Missouri, I had actually taken a job as a teller for Great Southern Bank temporarily. I think I was there for two weeks until I actually landed more of a career-based job. 
And uh, those two weeks put me on the radar of this commercial group because they recognized my last name. So in a weird kind of roundabout way, just this temporary two-week job was enough to have my phone number in the Rolodex of the banker that needed to offload the property. So then once my dad declined it, he immediately called me and said, hey, your dad did this once. Do you want to try it? And that was when I was like, yeah, yeah. why not risk everything? I'm young and this is amazing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Opportunity. When an opportunity is there, you got to seize it. And The biggest thing was the line of credit that yeah. my living expenses was three times my annual salary that I was earning. So I was like, I know I'm good for at least three years. After that, we'll figure it out. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's quite, yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of people getting into real estate in different ways. Not quite like that. Weird. But, I mean, it allows you, one, you had some experience with that FHA loan, single family house. Uh, let's, you know, get some good equity and make some money on this. And then self-storage. Did you, I mean, what, what was the results of that? Did you end up holding that? Did you mm-hmm. end up uh, value adding and flipping the property? And then uh, where'd you kind of transfer and go after that deal? That's That's a great question. So, I'm really proud of those early days in Joplin. Um, we took uh, across three facilities. It was roughly 700 units. And uh, occupancy, when we took it over, was reported to be 60%. Um, what we found was we had less than 10% in actual paying customers. So uh, there was no cash flow, like not even close. And so when we actually found that out, we, again, different time, we called the lender and said, hey, we need no payments for at least six months. And they said, absolutely. So they waived payments for six months, uh, a lot like the COVID deferral, you know, where people did that on their mortgages, kind of the same thing. And so we ended up making those payments, those interest payments back in the future. But uh, for six months, no payments. And we uh, focused on just cleaning them up. And uh, it was gross. And I mean, again, going back, the only money I had were these line of credits to use. So it was just tons and tons of physical labor. And what's wonderful about storage as an asset class is it's metal and concrete. So when I say cleaning them out, I'm literally taking people's junk and just throwing it away. Or I'm, you know, telling homeless people they can't live there anymore. You know, those kinds of things. There wasn't so much, um, you know, plumbing, uh, electrical issues, things like that. Not so much. Largely just literally cleaning metal buildings out. Um, Fixing locks, doors, and then releasing those units. And so over the course of about nine months, we went from 8% uh, paying tenant base all the way up to 60% occupant and paying, which was huge. I mean, that was a lot. Mm-hmm. I remember days when we'd rent like 16 and 20 storage units at a time. Because uh, again, economy is booming at this time, uh, right? We're recovering and there's been no new construction in the area at all. So no one was building new storage units during the, the Great Recession. So when we look at the timing of it all, it was absolutely perfect. So as soon as we got new units online, people were leasing them like crazy. And we got all three facilities to 100% occupied with waiting lists at a couple of them. Really? So uh, we ended up selling two, and uh, I kept the third for a long time. Um, I should have never sold that facility, but I ended up selling it and buying another in in the Ozark area. But uh to, to go back even further, this is where it ties into the licensure side is when I went to list those properties, the three largest commercial agents in Joplin turned me down. So they were like, no, we're familiar with the properties. They're the worst in town and we don't want them. And I'm like, you know, a young kid, I'm like, hey, 
I fixed them. And they're like, we don't care. We better now. Like, we're, we're not working with you. So I got my license and um, that was my first listing was two of the three storage facilities. And we sold it for above asking. And it was changed my life. Like I look back on that. That was the one piece that was absolutely God-given and completely crazy. Right. Right. I love that, that you literally approached the ones that were doing the deals in Joplin. You would have thought, would have picked it up and got it sold. And I mean, you knew the numbers at that point. You knew that it was a good property for somebody to buy at the right price. But for them to turn it down, you're like, okay, let's turn around and get the license and do it, do it yourself. Yeah. So I didn't know anyone, right? So you're in a new town. You don't know anyone. You're just calling whatever signs you see out and saying, hey, list my properties. And after three people saying no, you kind of get like, well, what do you do? So I stuck a for sale by owner sign in the yard as I went and turned and started taking my license online. Thankfully, my undergrad did prepare me for that, right? I had that emphasis in real estate. So I was able to get through that quickly, get licensed, officially list those properties, and uh, we sold them. And sold it to a family out of Mount Vernon. I think they ran them for years and made a bunch of money too. They resold them again to someone else who paid even more, you know? So at the end of the day, it was a lot of hard, hard work, a lot of physical labor, but the key to it all was the bank being willing to work with us. We had great debt and that made everything, you know, easier. Right. And I'm sure it was satisfying to see a property going from 9% occupant, you know, paying occupancy yeah. to fully occupied, renovated, you know, helping the economy, um, making more people money now, rather than it just sitting there, the bank's happy. You get a great connection with the bank and that just launches a whole host of deals and experience that you now have into, you know, what comes in real estate. Yeah. Yeah. So what's wild about this one is, you know, when we bought it, took it over, the bank had hired a consulting company out of Florida who posted Craigslist ads and hired property managers in Joplin. So when we got the facilities day one, I walked, I, we literally sign and then I drive to Joplin. So we sign in Springfield, drive an hour to Joplin. I walk on site and the guy that's in there running, it's like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm 20 at this time. I'm 21. No, I was 20. And I'm like, I'm the new owner. And he's probably mid forties, big guy, bald, you know, missing a lot of teeth. And he goes, no, you're not. And I'm like, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're fired. <laughs> like, oh, that was yeah. literally day one was like, I have to go fire this guy. Right. Well, we negotiate. He ends up staying on to kind of help transition. And I paid him throughout that time until I found him dealing prescription drugs and child pornography out of the office. Mm. So then again, at that point, young kid, oh my gosh, what do I do? I've been working and employing this person. So then I get him arrested, right? Like crazy. Uh, so this is like my first ever experience as an employer is uh, I had to call the police on my own employee and get him thrown in jail. So, you know, there was, a, it was crazy. When I say the properties were bad, everything was nuts with them. Right. Yeah. Not only, yeah, were the cops dropping off uh, homeless people there for a place to stay, you were dealing with uh, some criminal activity from your, your oh, yeah. management office. Yeah. That you had to clean up. So the thing is, you're learning not only real estate, what's a good deal, how, you know, how can we improve the value, what will it be worth, but also just management and employees and then the sales side. I mean, you learned and experienced a lot with that one deal off the bat. And I'm sure that set you up for, 
well, just knowing what to do moving forward, but also maybe what you were interested in. It seemed like self-storage piqued your interest at that point because I know today you're, you know, you have many, many units. Is that where it all began? You just saw the value in storage versus other assets. Did you move into different assets classes just to try it out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think at that point I realized storage is just a great lever for making money, but I also realized, man, this takes a lot of effort. So um, unlike traditional asset classes, it truly works more like a retail store. So you have office hours, people in and out, you know, you have to have phone call and marketing and you have inventory. So it's just, it's a different business. It is truly a business versus a real estate asset. So you get the real estate asset benefits, like the ability to cost segregate or be taxed as rental income, um, to get the real estate professional designation, but then it operates like a business. So you have uh, elasticity in pricing. I can sell retail items. Um, and you know, there's actual customer service that has to be done. So it's just a different mix. And so I thought at that point, okay, I can keep the one facility, um, that was in North Joplin, Webb city area. I can run my real estate sales company out of Springfield. Cause at that point I moved back to Springfield, married my wife. Um, so I could, I could sell real estate in Springfield. We could run the Joplin mini storage, but I couldn't take on more mini storages. So we had then accumulated a little over 48 doors of class B property. So duplexes, triplexes, townhomes, apartment complex, um, all in the Ozark South Springfield areas. And uh, I thought that was it. I loved it. Yeah, I, they never called me. They called my property manager. It was incredible, you know, until I started doing the math on rates of return. And I was like, man, this really sucks compared to storage. So... That kind of brought me back. We've since shed most of our multifamily and reinvested into storage again. Hmm. Okay. So moving, so you did, yeah, try it out just to see. Oh yeah. I mean, was it, was the reasoning for that again, easier to, to get into those types of deals, just the starting point of the capital needed to to find the deals even compared to storage. There's only so much, you know, there's only so many of those facilities out there that need that kind of improvement perhaps yep. versus single families. There's, you know, just a plethora of those around town that could use improving and value add. Was that just really the main reason? And then later on you have more access to capital, more contacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I couldn't, once we made that sale, I couldn't allow that capital to just be dead and sit. So I had to go invest in something and with storage, it's very easy to spend too much on a facility, right? So um, a good example is I, I got an email while we've been sitting here of a deal in Northern Missouri. It was built last year and they're asking six times multiplier what I just paid for the facilities I bought here in town. So when you look at it, you go, oh, it's so beautiful. It's brand new. Everything's great. And then you really start to dig in. You go, man, someone is going to buy that deal and they are not going to make any money. And they're going to have the headache then of running a business. So it, I had to make the decision there of like, okay, Number one, I can go overpay for storage or build it. Um, number two, I could put the capital to use in an asset class that was easier to access. Um, so I could continue to grow the capital stack through a more accessible asset. And typically on more accessible assets, I can get better discounts because I can negotiate or whatever it is. So, um, you know, bought some from you, bought some from other guys, and then started to go direct to owner with the multifamily stuff and was able to buy 
you know, package of duplexes, a small apartment complex, off market completely at a pretty good discount. So I felt good that the capital was being deployed again, but I also was careful to buy, you know, that B class asset that I knew if I needed to sell it to go buy a storage opportunity, I could. Mm. And so eventually that's what ended up happening. Um, I had an opportunity to buy a really large facility in a, a class A location at a good price. And I was able to sell the North Joplin and a good chunk of the multifamily uh, quickly to then transition the money to the larger facility. Mm. And so uh, going back, I still employ that strategy. I love buying value add single families. I love good class B duplexes, you know, that kind of thing. Because if I ever need to, I can sell them quick, but the capital that's deployed in those areas um, is earning, you know, a really good rate of return. So, mm. uh, but still doesn't touch storage. That's the thing that's crazy is the returns we earn in storage are significantly higher, but the headache is significantly higher. You know, right. well, like you've mentioned, you have to have an on-site full-time manager with pretty much all of your facilities because it is a business and mm -hmm. it's got a lot more coming and going and there's just much more involved than yeah, single family property or even another property that's getting taken care of by a manager. And, and that's really all there is. There's, it, it's a business. It truly is, you know, like a lot of commercial real estate can be. And so for, for you, I know a lot of people get into real estate investing and they say, well, I'm buying for the long haul. I'm buying to hold for the long term. I'm never going to sell. Was that at all your idea, philosophy early on of I'm getting these single families? I don't want to sell them. I'm you know, I want the cash flow and to pay these things off. Or did you always know that there was a good chance I'm just, uh, you know, collecting these properties, but very willing to look at the data, look at the numbers and move that somewhere else if a better deal comes along? Yeah, I think there's, it's a great question. So me personally, I've always been the, what is my return on the capital, right? So I'm a lot less concerned about, you know, whether I hold something for a long period or not. I'm concerned about taxation and then return on investment. And so, um, and, I, and I've kind of always been that way. Like I would rather make really good money decisions over the long term. Um, part of that's because I'm a very active investor. So I'm very much involved in the numbers. Um, I manage the managers. And if the managers need to be fired, I'll fire them and I'll run it until I find a new one. You know, I'm very much willing to, be involved in the nitty gritty of everything. And a lot of investors aren't. So I think it depends on your personality as to what's best for each individual. But early on, I was like, man, I just need money. Like I just need to earn. And, you know, I'd just been married. We had a kid really quickly and I'll never forget. I was like, okay, I have a real estate license. I also have a baby. I better produce. So that first year, the first six months, I did like nothing with that real estate license. The next six months, I sold $7 million, which is like nuts as a first year, you know? Mm. And I didn't know anyone. I, I was from the West Coast and then Joplin and then Springfield. I was just doing anything I could to make money. We flipped a couple houses in that year too. I was literally just, if it makes a dollar, I'll do it, you know? And part of that naivety was actually what created so much success, Kind of like the, you know, analysis paralysis, but the opposite of like, I didn't do any analysis, so I better work as hard as I can, you know? Right. And um, I think that actually fueled quite a bit. And we see that a lot. I mean, when you got started as a great example, 
you know, you easily could have just said, well, I'll think through every single transaction I make, or you were like, Hey, if I can make 500 bucks on this, I'll do it. Right. So I was very much in that mindset and where I'm at now is very much, okay, how do we achieve scale while continuing to deploy capital appropriately? And, and how do we do that through using leverage or debt wisely? And, um, that's kind of where we've gotten to now where I know my returns outpace any of my peers, but I'm also out of the, the friends that I have in this space. I'm also the most analytical when it comes to, you know, the actual asset class. So I still invest in multifamily and singles and that kind of thing, but I'm really investing in those two, then deploy it into a systematic approach around storage. Um, mm. So that's, that's kind of my game now, I guess. Absolutely. And you've done well, both on the investment side and on the retail uh, mm -hmm. realtor listing side. Do you feel like those have very nicely complemented each other on allowing you to find success in both? Or do you, do you see them as very different businesses that maybe don't interact quite as much? Um, they haven't complemented each other as much as I thought they would. I will say that. So there's a big fallacy out there amongst investors that they need to go get their real estate license. And that's just not like, it doesn't correlate, you know? So I, I've, I've never bought a good deal from another real estate agent. How's that? I've never had a real estate agent say, Hey Wes, I know you buy deals. Come buy this. I've bought two direct to owner, but that was because I went to the owner via mail, sending them, you know, lead generating direct to owner. Uh, having a license, in fact, probably holds me back more uh, because we have certain disclosure laws. So when I meet a consumer, I have to tell them, hey, I'm licensed. Hey, this is the actual value of your property. You know, So I end up losing more deals, I think, than buying. So uh, specifically with real estate, real estate sales and real estate investing, I think if you can avoid being licensed but remain an investor, awesome. To backtrack or to generalize even further, there's a big difference between active and passive income, right? And what we see is in good times, people stop earning active income. That's their job, their W-2, or in my case, sales, you know, whatever it is that if I put time in, I receive money. So people stop doing that when it's easy to invest. And then it becomes really hard to invest, right? So interest rates go up, uh, sales slow down. And those people that quit that W-2 or they quit earning that active income, wholesaling, transactional sales, whatever, consulting job, whatever you've got, right? When they stop that and the market's hard, they find themselves in a pinch. And so one of the biggest benefits to having a good income stream actively is that I haven't had to touch at all any of the capital from the investment side. So that's grown exponentially. And I shouldn't say any of it because every once in a while, when I want some, I can grab it, right? So I wouldn't be in this house if it wasn't because for six years, I didn't touch any of the capital, you know? And then we had a great opportunity. Tax-free was able to pull some money out via refinance and buy a house. So um, there's a huge advantage to earning a great income and also still having, you know, a solid uh, protected capital stack that's being deployed well. I think that's probably the key to exponential growth. Um, so right. I always advise right. people like, don't, don't quit flipping houses. Don't quit wholesaling. Don't quit selling. Don't quit your job until over here is so big that you absolutely have to. And most people won't ever get to the point where that's so big they have to, 
you know, right. They'll choose to limit their lifestyle, uh, before, before, uh, you know, sacrificing the investment. Yes. Yeah. And you can see those two extremes of somebody that, you know, they jump in, maybe it's real estate sales, maybe it's some other business, but they're self-employed, but all they're doing is earning active income. It's active. It's active. The, the time that they put in is what they get paid for. And that's it. They stop working. They stop making money. And they kind of get stuck in that of they can't delegate and, and set up a business. They just don't take the time to buy those investments that they know that they should that would be working for them. Or, you know, it seems like in the last few years, especially in a great run with real estate, you have so many people that are so investment focused that all they do is buy investments, buy investments, passive income, cash flow. But yeah, the, the truth is it's going to be pretty hard to live off of that mm-hmm. and really make significant money there until way down the line or you have just some very solid assets with with low debt and and a lot of spread i think there does need to be that balance of really dial in especially early on your your machine the cash flow the money you're making but be diligent to be setting that aside in these investments that yeah like you said you didn't touch it for years but then all of a sudden you get to pull out and utilize that money um, and it's going to grow over time so I think that's a huge distinction that you're talking about there. Yeah, I think it works in con- like they work as a flywheel. So the the better you are at earning active income and, and being disciplined in limiting your lifestyle to that active income via budgeting and all those things, the more you'll actually grow your investment side. And when we stop the active income side, what we see is people will deploy as much capital as they can and attempt to live off of the return the hard part becomes when, you know, a loan's up and it's up for renewal and you're going from a three to a seven and a half percent. Or I just refinanced to a 9.15. And my lender was like, man, I'm so sorry, you know, apologizing. And I'm like, it's fine. Like I earn enough active income to where I don't ever have to touch that cash flow. So one event can seriously hinder cash flow if all you've done is invest your capital stack and you're hoping to live off of it. Like, man, that's kind of a tough position to find yourself in when things go wrong. Um, so active income is an insurance policy against losing your actual investments. Um, at least that's how I see it. Um, other people, maybe maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe they just have access to capital some other way and I can't figure it out. So, <laughs> No, no, I mean, I, yeah, I think that, yeah, you just have to take that approach to it of, of focusing on a money generating business or some sort of occupation that will sustain you through those ups and downs and not just relying on those good times and calculating your numbers on the good times. A lot of people fall into that. Oh, people get wrecked. Like, I mean, I've, I can probably on two hands give you names of real estate agents that quit selling and go full on into investing. And then now they're not even in the business at all. And they work Mm -hmm. for Verizon or whoever, you know, Right. It's super right. common. Yeah. For you, do you have certain equity percentages that you like to hold in your investment properties or cash reserve, you know, dollar per unit that you you try and hold on to that you feel comfortable with? Because of course you can go through and try and leverage as much as possible to grow as fast as possible. And then you have people that are all cash and they won't do anything quickly, you know, uh, Dave Ramsey style that just want to maximum protection. Uh, you know, for you, where, where does that land? How, how aggressive do you try and get? So I think, um, wisdom says don't use debt, right? But results say use debt. So if, if your goal is to never have anything ever taken from you, no matter what wonderful pay cash, 
buy the best insurance policies ever, hire the best attorneys, do that. Cool. If that's you, that's you. Where I sit is um, a little bit more of a hedged position. So in other words, I love using leverage to create equity opportunities. Um, so I use debt. Now I say that to also say I buy properties at a discount and then I add value to them so that that percentage of debt to value it sits in that 60 to 70% range. So ideally I'd be at about 50%. Um, that's kind of the goal. But what ends up happening is that that percentage, that loan to value, um, that fluctuates. So there'll be times when I'm down into like, I was at like 46% two years ago, right? And then I had a crazy opportunity to buy almost a thousand storage units across my plate. Well, I'm now sitting at like 71%, right? So I use that equity strategically to go buy the big asset and now I'm going to work my way back down through things like fix and flips, paying off the debt, refinancing the debt to lower percentages, that kind of thing. The other thing I would say is I am very much a big fan of low interest fixed long-term debt. So um, next year, I'm going to be looking at refinancing. I have two renewals up on duplexes. I'm going to be looking at putting those on 30-year notes and, and holding them you know, at lower interest. I'm a huge fan of that. Because I know that duplex isn't going to go down in value. It's upkept. It's a B class. Great renters. So I'm I'm really happy with that debt. So if I am increasing debt, I want to make sure it's usable, useful debt, um, or it's debt that's going to allow me to achieve value add. So mm. even though I got up to seventy one percent, I would bet by next year, as I get new appraisals and we refinance that debt down to lower percentages. That, that loan to value overall in my portfolio will drop back into the 60s. Mm -hmm. So it'll probably be in that 62% range. And uh, I just like it there. I think there's a lot of cash flow, a lot of flexibility. I had an issue at a property and we had a $110,000 roof to pay for. I had to find that somehow. Well, I had plenty of equity I could tap into via line of credit or I could go to cash reserves. Um, I will say don't touch cash reserves unless you have to. That's why they're there. It's an emergency feature. Um, so I keep about six months of expenses in cash reserves. Uh, storage is different, not on a per unit basis. I just kind of look at it and say, okay, our business takes this much cash to run for six months. So that's what we'll hold. Um, for singles or, uh, you know, residential tenancy, typically I'll hold uh, six months of gross income. So if it's a thousand dollar rental, I'll have six grand sitting in an account for it. Oh no. Nice. Yes, I, I think that's that's huge, and you know you've got different sources like Bigger Pockets and such. Right now, is real big on you know still be involved in real estate. The economy is kind of weird, and you know we're trying to figure out exactly where it's going to go. But just a big thing is what is the debt that you have? Of course, you can't fully eliminate the risk in real estate. You always have to know what you're buying, and if you're anytime you're leveraging, there's some risk there. But there's ways to mitigate that risk by by having good debt. Who who are your lenders? Do you yeah. know them? What are the properties that you have debt on? Are you upkeeping them? Good tenants? Are you going to be able to fill those vacancies? And and yeah, a healthy equity percentage that when tough times come and a bank looks at your assets, are they seeing that maxed out leverage with you know barely cash flowing or not at all? Or are they seeing, okay, this is a business that's making money with proper equity and and it seems like you've got a good, yeah, you've still got a great spread and equity percentage there and you know, that kind of fits your comfort level on, on where you want to be with your investing. Right. Yeah. Managing your equity positions well, 
um, is actually managing your opportunities, right? So another way to think of it is if I'm leveraged high all the time, the only way to acquire another property is to be leveraged high on that property. Um, and then I'm praying at all cash flows. Whereas if I manage my equity well, I can tap into that for strategic opportunities that might not cash flow. So the facilities that you know most recently purchased, they were looked over by two other local investors who didn't buy them because they couldn't get their portfolio to cash flow if they acquired them at the price that was being asked. The price that was being asked was not unreasonable. In fact, they appraised significantly more. They just weren't cash flowing at all. Mm-hmm. And so to go spend millions of dollars on properties not cash flowing, most can't do that. But I was able to take a low equity position and then, you know, reallocate into that. So overall my portfolio still cash flows. Now with just a few tweaks, we're already cash flow positive over the last two months. So when you look at it, you go, man, those guys missed huge equity opportunities uh, simply because they didn't manage their existing portfolio very well. And so now my goal over the next six months is to reallocate debt percentages down, refinance any higher debt or line of credit, and of course continue to add value um, at the properties we own. So you can kind of re-margin and then be ready for that next opportunity. Right. While we're talking about self-storage, I've I've been curious. What, what's your take on storage in in good times and good markets versus recessions and down markets? Do you think it's very stable? Do you think that um, actually a lot of people will be moving out of this? Is is it tough to say? And, and also with storage, uh, well, go go ahead and what what are your thoughts on on that with the different markets and yeah. and that being a stable versus unstable asset? It's a great question. So right away in 2008, 2009, you know, uh, storage performed extremely well. It was the number one most stabilized asset class across all real estate assets. Um, yay, right? That was at that time. Previously, it might have been apartments during bad times. I don't know, whatever. I don't think that one major event sets the pace or the tone for an asset class for its entire future. So when I look at things right now, um, we have a lot of inventory on the market. There's a lot of new construction. Uh, storage back then was kind of an unknown thing. Over over 90% of storage facilities in 2009 were owned by mom and pop, right? And now we're considered an institutionalized asset class. So we've got major players who own millions of square feet of real estate across the nation involved. So, you know, in fact, it, one of my biggest competitors moving into the market is U-Haul. They're building 2,000 units. I'm like, I've been the biggest in our county for five years, and now I'm going to be a pipsqueak compared to them, you know? So when I look at it, I go, man, this is a little bit tricky to answer because inventory's really become a popular thing. So the asset class has become popular, institutional money's in it. We have way more inventory. So there's a chance that we get beat up if there is a downturn. So this is another reason why locking in good interest loans uh, longer terms on them. So 25 year amortizations, but a lock period of five to seven years versus I was taking stuff out one year and three years recently. So pushing those, you know, balloons out and trying to, trying to get renewals at a period where I think it's interest rates will be lower. has been big. Uh, but to answer your question, I, I think if we see a major market shift, storage will be resilient, but there's no guarantee it's going to be the number one asset class. So, yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's just the, the cycle of really any opportunity, any investment of, you know, you've mentioned storage compared to single family, multifamily, uh, some of these apartments, good margins, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of room there and it makes sense. It's been a mom and pop type of business. It hasn't been something super institutional historically. 
well, what's going to happen? You're going to have big companies like U-Haul and others just going in and building and buying. And, and so those margins might get compressed somewhat, or at least uh, moving forward, maybe there's not the same deals as there were in the past, but that just makes sense because that's the movement of money and people seizing opportunities. Exactly. Yeah. If you if you heard like, oh, this is the best asset that you could have invested in the worst you know time period in modern history, um, you would naturally then for the next decade figure out ways to get money into those positions. That way, if there was another downturn, you'd be safe. Well, that's exactly what major REITs have done across the country. I mean, Blackstone, BlackRock, they're both involved. I mean, you have U-Haul, you have monstrous companies, you know, billions of dollars of market cap moving into the space. So. Mm-hmm. You know, now as a mom and pop operator myself, I'm looking at it going, okay, yes, how do I compete with them on pricing and retain profitability? Hmm. So that's that's the trick is how do I out mom and pop them? Yes. Yes. You've got to you've got to do it. I mean, and there is an advantage to being local and knowing your market as well that you can oh, yeah. tap into. For you, you know, right now a lot of people are scared off um in in the current economy we're in and just scared off in, in investing somewhat because of the high interest rates. What are your thoughts on continuing to invest aggressively in buy and hold real estate versus pulling back or switching up a strategy right now? There's going to be good times. There's going to be bad times in any asset class. You know, I've invested in stocks and lost a lot of money. I've invested in stocks and made a bunch of money. So there's not really any good prescription at all times. So what I like to tell people is, you know, don't be dumb. Like if you know you're taking an abnormal amount of risk on a property that's not cash flowing with the hopes that someday it will, and it's a really bad market right now, what what really makes you think it's going to get that much better in the short term, you know? So um, I think it's really property specific right now. If I was going to be super aggressive in any one space, it would be in my lead generation. Um, so what I'm seeing right now, well, there's, there's two pieces that I'd be aggressive in. Number one is lead gen because people are buying deals right now because they're the only deals they're seeing, which is so foolish to me because the, the money will be lost in that context. It will be made when Lincoln out lead generates you and has 15 options to choose from. He's going to buy the best three out of 15. If I'm stuck with two options and I'm buying both of them and they're both okay, like I'm going to be the one coming to Lincoln saying, Hey, bail me out. Right. Mm. So, um, your opportunity is actually found in lead generation right now and be a great, strong generation of, of leads or opportunities for investment. It, that's where you're going to find success in this market. The second is, uh, the number one way to reduce risk is through knowledge, right? The more you understand money, the economy and flows, that's where, that's where you're actually going to reduce risk. So in other words, the self-storage deal that I took over, you know, my own father was like, don't buy it. Right. But I kind of laughed because I had actually done the due diligence on the properties and I had an actual clear game plan around it. He looked at it and said, they don't cash flow right now. That's a lot of money. Don't buy it. So wait, hold on. You're saying it's risky, but I'm looking at it and I know I can get them to cash flow within 30 days. So who's actually taking the risk? right? He is because he lost uh, about a million in equity on that deal by not buying it. And I gained it, right? So knowledge is going to reduce a lot of the perceived risk out there. And there's also so much talk right now that it's absolutely toxic. So, you know, selling a house in 45 days versus five days really doesn't make that much difference, right? That's 
one mortgage payment, that's some utility payments, a little bit of insurance, whoopee, right? However, investors, they see that and they see pricing decline and they freak out. And that's largely because they cut margins just to get deals. So they weren't educated enough around the market cycle economically of what's going to happen. Um, and they also didn't lead generate enough. So they get stuck with deals that put them upside down. So I'm very aggressive in understanding what's going on and learning through qualified sources and then lead generation. And then through that, you're going to get opportunities that become fantastic buys. So it's always a great time to buy a fantastic opportunity. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. There's going to be up, up and down markets, but it's more so it's, it's deal specific. It's doing your due diligence. And I like what you're talking about risk there. Cause you know, you heard it, you, you hear it say that taking no risk is almost the riskiest thing of all, right? It, yeah. You're, you're always going to engage in some risk in life and in business and whatever it is, it's, you, you're just, you choose the risk that you take. And mm -hmm. is that going to be on a great opportunity on good deals that you've lead gen for, and you've got opportunity, you know, different options, or is it by sitting on your hands and doing nothing and just hoping things change for the better? You know, you, you've got to be the one to choose that for, for you in, in a time like this, or in general, you know, you talk a lot about knowledge reduces that risk. Yeah. Are you absorbing a lot of content books? Are you talking with other investors, how, how do you continue to, to educate yourself? Is it looking a lot of the just active data and shutting out the noise or is it a combination of all these? Definitely a combination. I don't think that there's going to be one great source. So uh, in great times or bad times, because I look at, you know, 2018 to 2021 and I missed so many deals. Like I missed all of them. I bought and grew and great things happened, but compared to what crossed my plate, I bought maybe 5%, right? And 100% of them made money during that stretch. Whereas now, I'm also equally conservative. So like market was volatile in an upward direction, right? Now market's volatile in a downward direction. So I'm also kind of pacing that same way as I will only buy what I really truly want and know will work. And the only way I know that is through all those things is networking. Uh, it's boots on the ground. What's happening at the properties you own? Are you auditing what your property manager is telling you? Like how often do I truly walk my residentials? Um, a lot of market statistics. Um, I, you know, I, I'm a kind of a geek for that stuff, but I think it tells such a huge story. Like, yes, things are selling for less and there's, you know, more days on market for a single family sale. Yet also I know 400 homes sold last month. So is it really that risky or am I priced wrong, right? So there's some conversation there. I, I think that when markets change, deal structures change, but you know, it doesn't mean you don't you know, do deals. Uh, I'm rereading a lot right now. So um, I'm going back economically all the way through the early thinkers. Um, I mean, I'm super geeky stuff all the way to rereading how to manage a self-storage facility. I'm literally reading a book right now about self-storage management and I've done it for a decade. So, you know, when I look at it, I go, this is a perfect opportunity to relearn a lot of tactics to solidify the decisions you've made. And then also to make sure you're taking advantage of uh, the, the opportunities the economy is bringing. Mm. Yeah. I think that's so good. And we, we have help too, because people will bring you deals. Right. Right. Like, cause if you have money and someone else has an opportunity and they can't take it, they'll bring it to you. Right. That's kind of the whole point. So mm. we, we haven't tapped into 
your retail business too much on the sales side with Keller Williams, but I am curious. You've got you've got a team now. Uh, how how many uh, do you have working on your team or for you there? There's 18 of us over there. 18. How do you balance your time with working on training, growing that team on a, a great business that that is, and and then the investment side that we've been talking a lot about? Is it just one fits in around the other? Is it just you s- split your schedule right down the middle to spend some on both? Good question. So real estate sales is kind of a 24-hour thing. I mean, this morning I woke up to 41 text messages, you know, and it's like, it's just kind of part of it. So that kind of flows all the time. Um, storage is a little bit more nine to five, kind of when the office is open, things happen more. Um, the key to all of it is have absolutely exceptionally great help. Um, so Samantha Davis on our sales team, she's our director of operations. She is a stud, um, like super stud. She's been interviewed on national stages. She's absolutely amazing. She could run that entire business herself. Um, I'm just now basically representing clients and okaying the decisions she makes, right? Uh, on the storage side, I've got Derek Hartzell, another huge shout out to Derek. He should be interviewed on national stages, but we don't really have that for storage yet. Um, but he can run, he's running a thousand, 1600 units for us right now. Um, so he's overseeing the other property managers at those locations. So today is a great example. Uh, we had an auction. So we were auctioning 26 units at one of these value add facilities. And that's a hard process. It's hard to do one. He's doing 26 at a facility that he does not directly manage. So he's running a huge facility in Ozark today while also boots on the ground at another one helping a new property manager through a massive auction process. And I'm here with you. So all of that to say is having extremely great people will truly change your life. And so it becomes easier as you achieve scale because what you'll end up dealing with is the people you want to deal with. And so if you look through you know, my daily, I'm speaking to clients directly on sales side, and then I speak to Derek and Samantha, and that's it. There's really, everyone else is just kind of friends or banter, you know? Um, it's really just those two and then clients, so. Right, and obviously that's a that's a process to get it there. And, you know, a lot of training in between, and, you know, I'm sure you made a lot more hires back in the day versus now that can even be delegated out. And, you know, Samantha or whoever can can bring on the new people that you need for the, the systems. But for you, you know, back in the day, you could only handle so much because it was all your time. Now you're able to, to utilize other people's um, skills and, and what they're good at, and you're all able to benefit from it. Yeah. And I think the biggest lesson I've learned in all of that is um, let them grow with you. You know, I married my wife when I was absolutely dead broke. Like we had nothing, nothing. You knew us then. Like we had literally nothing. And growing up financially with her has been the best blessing. You know, um, the maturity that she has around understanding what we do and allowing me the freedoms to take risk, um, calculated, obviously risk, um, has been incredible. So Sam's kind of that same way in business early on as I really needed help. I hired her for like 28,000 a year, you know, which is nothing. She left a $50,000 a year job to grab that. What the heck? But we've now kind of grown up together over the last, you know, five years and she could run everything. She... She just doesn't do direct, you know, client representation. She practically does, but I still have to bring them in and sign them. And then she does everything else, you know? So 
when I look at it, the the key and Derek's the same way. You know, I bought a large facility, brought him in, and I worked hand in hand with him for months, and then kind of said, "Hey, you get the the gist of it. You start developing systems, and we'll work together." So we kind of grow up in all of it together. We we make corporate decisions together. Even though the buck stops with me, I want Samantha to not only have the responsibility but the authority to make decisions. Same with Derek. He doesn't just have responsibility to manage something. He has authority to manage something. And it's my job to make sure I've trained him and communicated with him enough to not only correct him when he's wrong, uh, but to also personally be okay when he's wrong. Mm. So that's where most leaders really miss is they get frustrated when people in their world make a mistake. And I'm not saying I'm immune to that. Of course, it's frustrating because it usually costs money. But at the end of the day, if I gave them the role and the responsibility, I should also give them the authority and the, and the freedom to make that mistake. And then we can recuperate, we can figure out the, the solution from that mistake, and then we can implement systems and conversation around it, never doing it again. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's golden and really separates, you know, again, self-employed people that maybe even have one or two employees from true business owners that can take a step back if they would like, and their business is running itself, or they can start a second business or grow to a really significant place is that hiring and, and learning to delegate and finding talent and, and just trusting, like you're saying, and giving them that not only responsibility, but authority over whatever, uh, they are in charge of. Yeah. I mean, last year is a great example. I, well, this was uh, no, this would have been 2019, 2020. Yeah. 2020, February, 2020. Um, I went to, uh, my grandparents died and they wanted to be, um, cast their ashes, cast their honeymoon spot in Hawaii. So, uh, their will left everyone money and we all flew to Hawaii. And so that was supposed to be the first two weeks of February. Well, I got sick the week before and then we flew, came back and then I got COVID. So I was out for like six weeks and I probably, I mean, I, I can hardly remember those weeks if I'm being honest, because I was just so active and then so sick. And uh, at that time, our team had sold 28 homes and somehow I had represented 12 of them. Um, And I honestly, I was completely out. So the team still jokes about it, but it was a great testament to, I was forced to be out and we didn't miss a beat, you know? So you're absolutely right. If you can focus on scale to the point of adding that director of operations or that executive assistant, um, you're training your, your talent in that person will, you know, it'll blow up. I mean, everything in your life will become, um, you'll be able to achieve so much more if you choose to, or you'll be able to not. Right. Mm. So you'll get to kind of customize your life that much more. And it's fun. Right. I feel like we could go into the, the hiring and, and team building for a while, but I, one question before we enter the, to the final part here is. For you, when it comes to goals, are you taking a, a really far outlook at five to 10 year goals? Do you break it down backwards or do you take more things more one year at a time, see how the markets change and how that's going to adjust for you? Yeah, there's a great little book about this. It's right behind me. Um, so the old one thing, um, have you ever seen the goal setting to the now exercise? Uh, I have. It is the best goal setting exercise ever. So I use it and I do it every three months. And a lot of times I can't find the page, but it's in the book. 
Um, so the idea is you set a someday goal, like this is where I want to be someday in the future. And you break it down 10, five, three, one, you know, one month, six month, whatever. Right. And the idea is like you as a person, your goals will change. And so the constant reflection on where you're wanting to go someday will then influence what's happening in the now. And so that's the idea is we goal set all the way to the now and a lot of times it's built on, okay, someday I want to do, I want to own a $63 million ranch in Wyoming and I don't want anyone around me, right? So let's say that's your goal. Well, that's going to influence literally what you do next year, right? Because you'll be building toward that. And so the goal setting to the now allows you to see that. So that's what we do. I'll sit down with my wife. We'll discuss what someday looks like for us. And then I'll build backward through our businesses on how to get there. And uh, for us, that looks like storage. So we, we continue to build sales and storage in conjunction because they work well, like we talked about that flywheel. And then uh, eventually someday maybe have a, a big chain or just sell it to U-Haul or one of these other REITs. I don't know. But the idea is we can get to that someday goal. We have the vehicle. Now we just have to, to get there. So I review it every three months. Um, my wife and I review it annually. So. I like it. I like it. It's important. You know, every, everybody should have some sort of method for breaking down where they would like to get to in the future. And I think that's a, a really solid way of doing it there through that. And then you can do it like spiritually, physically, mentally, in friendships. It doesn't just have to be money and business and stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 Should be. It should be all of life too, because a lot of people can get hyper-focused on one aspect, but then the other areas suffer and then you're living half a life, you know, one for work and money. And then the rest is, you know, just halfway there. Yeah. I mean, I, I could have a net worth three times this, but if I didn't have the marriage I have, like, I don't know if it'd be worth it. Right. So I think there's some balance that needs to be had. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, four questions for you as we enter into the, the final part here, four questions we ask each guest. Number one, Wes, what is one of the best pieces of advice you have been given? Oh, um, that's so broad. It's, it's a big one. Um, I think duality is a detriment. Uh, that's, so that sticks with me. That's something that was told. Actually, um, a kid told me this. So back when you know we were doing stuff with uh, the church, um, this came up in a conversation about saying you're about something or saying you're going to do something, but not doing it. That is always a detriment. And um, that can be through goal setting. Hey, I want to do this over the next year and then not taking the activities to get there. It can be in friendships. It can kind of be in everything is um, having a, a hidden agenda or a, a separation between who you say you are and who you actually are um, or what you say you're going to do and what you're actually going to do. I think I see more people fail in that um, than not. So, and to bring it back to real estate, you know, we see people say, I'm going to sell a hundred homes this year. And then they take the activities to someone that sells 15 and they end up selling 12. You know, and then they question, you know, is real estate even right for them? And I'm like, well, no, because this, because this duality exists in you of this desire to achieve something huge. And then you don't take the activities to do it. So I, I love that kind of piece of advice or that warning of just always being mindful that what I say I'm going to do and what I do need to be in alignment. Right. That's, that's good. I hadn't heard that specifically before. Duality is a detriment that you've got to, you've got to follow through on your word. And if you're claiming something and you're putting it out there, 
not only for yourself, because you want to be able to prove to yourself that if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to, but also just to build your character and people's trust that you're around and actually making things happen. Yeah. I mean, obviously plans change sometimes and we all have the freedom to change plans or goals or whatever, but to year after year say I'm going to sell a hundred homes or I'm going to build a million dollar investment portfolio or whatever it is and then never take the actions. And people start to question everything. And and honestly, it would be really hard to live with me if I made promises to myself and didn't keep them. So that'd be tough. That's it. Yeah. Wes, what is one of your favorite business books? Hmm. So I've mentioned the one thing. I like that one a lot. Um, It's like a look at the old library there. Yeah. Um, I love Jim Collins, Good to Great. Um, I think it's both um, hyper-analytical, but also super practical. And um, he tracks case studies of major companies that, uh, that made that leap from just a good company to a great company. So I love that. Um, I, as much as it's a real estate book, it's also just a business book is the millionaire real estate agent. Um, it's literally teaches business systems. Uh, it's about real estate sales, right? Cause it's written to agents, but I use the systems in there across every business I'm involved with. Um, uh, so I, yeah, I, I would say probably one of those two, Jim Collins probably edges it out because the educational component is so much heavier in there. And it's a lot easier from a leadership perspective to implement, whereas the millionaire real estate agent is going to give you more tactical business models that you could go implement and follow. So, right now, I love both of those books, though. And is that second one, the millionaire real estate agent, is that also Gary Keller? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Gary and Jay. This is an old version, but. Yeah. So I've been through this one 19 times since I bought it. Mm. And uh, every time I'm like, oh, there's another way we're missing it on that model. Or, oh, hey, we could tweak our budget model to produce more income over here. You know, There's always something you can pull out of there. That's huge. I like the fact that you've read it that many times. I think mm. people really undervalue rereading books. I, I know I don't do a great job of it, getting better there. Because uh, I like to check things off the list. Oh, I've read that. And, you know, I got this broad understanding. But if you really want to know it well and be able to apply it and check in on yourself if you're applying it, you know, there's a couple handful of books that you could choose and just really improve your business and your skill sets. And I think what you did with that is is phenomenal. Yeah, I think a lot of people read more than they need to, like in terms of content, you know, um, like I've read a bunch of Gary Vee books. And I'm like, I've never implemented anything that Gary Vee has ever written. But then I come to a few of these, you know, more ap- applicable books and, you know, sometimes I'll read them once and be done. And then I'll go back and be like, oh gosh, um, actually I just thought of another one that I have to share with you. Yeah. Um, this bad boy is the best book I've ever read in about real estate. Can you see that crushing it by Brian Murray? That is by far the best book written about real estate investing. Um, specifically about larger scale apartments and commercial and how to get into it. Um, that guy, Brian Murray is now the director of acquisition. It basically runs open door capital for Brandon Turner. Now, um, he's a stud and the book is so good. And in the book, they even talk about active income versus passive and how you should keep your job and how to create value and how to understand loan structures inside of creating value. It's just excellent. Those are some good ones to check out. I'll have to look there. The last one you recommended to me was also the Gary Keller. 
Millionaire Real Estate Investor. It's a good one. And mm -hmm. read that one. And I think it just does such a good job of laying the foundation for investing in real estate, understanding how it works. And that's that's what I often recommend to especially beginners or people that just want to yeah. understand the fundamentals. Yeah, here's the model. Like you just follow it, right? Like but, that's all that book is. And if you do, you'll become a millionaire. And most people don't. So that's what separates people who you're interviewing and people that you're not interviewing mm -hmm. is largely, did they do the work? Is that duality things? Hey, I said, I want to be a millionaire real estate investor. Did I go do it? Did I take the actions necessary? And so, I, yeah, I love that book too. That's on the shelf. Don't worry. Yes. Yes. Good ones. All right. Then number three, what is one character trait you notice that successful people commonly share? At least in my circles, um, they love one another. Um, similar to that, I've noticed amongst men, most men are starved for friendship and community and, um, really highly successful people in my industry are very good about connecting with one another, specifically as men with other men. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd love to speak for the ladies. I'm just not a lady, so I don't want to, <laughs> I don't feel qualified to, but I know for the men in our industry, it's very easy to find yourself isolated. Uh, when you're an investor, it's extremely easy because it's kind of up to you. Unless you go build a team, you're not like hanging out under one corporate umbrella, investing with other people, you know, it's very isolated. And so one of the most successful or one of the, the patterns I see in successful people is they overcome that isolation through being involved in community groups or investor groups or coaching or coaching groups. They, they sincerely seek out other people to grow with almost like a pack animal, you know, they're both safer and stronger inside the pack yet. They're still doing what's best for them and growing individually, but they find themselves surrounded. So that would be like probably that. my answer there. For sure. I, I hadn't heard an answer on here like that, but I think it is so, so powerful. And for myself, I first year in real estate was by myself and there was some growth. Absolutely. But when I joined and shared an office with a couple other guys that were also doing real estate investing, I saw my growth just go up tremendously because of just that teamwork component, the the competitive nature of the challenge, but also just having that community to talk business and real estate and deals with. So I can attest to that personally. Yeah. It's everything from like connection and enjoyment to accountability and camaraderie, right? So mm. it's kind of a, a, there's a blanket there of it keeps you doing the things you need to do. So yes. Yeah. Yes. So good. So good. Well, last question here. Uh, simply, where can people connect with you? Man, um, I'm pretty terrible about this. Facebook probably, which shows my age. And I'm so sorry for everyone out there. Um, I'm on Instagram, but mostly just my wife posts stuff for me. Um, but you can go there if you want. I like reels. So I watch a lot of reels on Instagram. So send me some reels. Um, or you can always uh, just email or text me. That'd probably be easiest. Um, we do a couple fun things. So Litton Keith's Real Estate has a website called Springfield Area Home Search. I think I've got a brief bio on there. Uh, Springfield Investor Group or Club, sorry, Springfield Investor Clubs, a new launch that uh, me and a couple guys are are doing, and hopefully that's building that camaraderie again. Um, but really, most people at this point they uh, they just text me. So um, Lincoln, however you want to, you can share my number um, with the notes or. 
email or whatever. Um, but um, it's totally open book. And, and frankly, Facebook's probably the easiest way to connect. I don't post as much as I should because storage just isn't that sexy. So, yeah. But it makes money. That's why you do it. It makes money. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you. I really want you to interview one of my cousins. He owns uh, crematoriums. His his primary investment really? vehicle. Okay. He owns nine. Wow. Yeah, he's yeah, weird. I, I don't think he has internet, but he's he's loaded. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Yeah. There's probably not a lot of competition in the space, but <laughs> for a base. Nope. Nope. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, Wes, I, this has been awesome. It's good to hear, yeah, just your story and your insight into investing. And I think a lot of people are going to find value in it. So cool. I would definitely tell everyone listening, check out, uh, yeah, Litton Keats Real Estate. If you need uh, represented for an agent here in Southwest Missouri, they they crush it. They handle pretty much all of my listings. And and yeah, the Springfield Investor Club, uh, great network and, and meet up there. So yeah, I appreciate it, Wes. Thanks for your time, and it was a great conversation. Thank you, Lincoln. This has been a blast. Yeah. Well, thank you all for tuning in to this episode of the Growth Circle Podcast. If you found value from it, like I did, if you would leave us a five-star review and rating, that would help out a lot, and we will catch you on the next one. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Growth Circle Podcast. If you're eager for more content on cultivating a growth mindset and obtaining financial freedom, Make sure to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and share this show with a friend. Keep growing, and we'll see you next time.